0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Being Patient Brain Talks. I'm Deborah Kahn, founder of Being Patient. We get this question a lot on being patient. Um, It's one dealing with genetics. Um, People who have family members who have been diagnosed with dementia often ask, should I get a genetic test? What is it going to tell me? Um, I'm afraid to get a genetic test. All of those comments come up time and time again. So we decided um, to go to one of my favorite um, Alzheimer's um, prevention and um, uh, a research institute, Banner Alzheimer's Institute. We have with us today Jessica Langbaum. And here um, she has the experience on this topic to tell us um, and, and, um, about, uh, you know, what do we know about genetics and should people be getting a genetic test? So, Jessica, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Oh, well, thanks for having me, Deborah. It's great to be here.
0: So you, the, the Banner Alzheimer's Institute obviously um, interfaces, uh, you have your brain health registry, um, you interface a lot with people, communities of people impacted by Alzheimer's or who have family members who have Alzheimer's disease. Um, what is the recommendation at Banner? Should people be getting tested to know what their genetic status is?
1: That's a great question. And I just want to start off um, by saying I'm not a genetic counselor. I am a a researcher um, who leads uh, research registries and clinical trials, um, which often enroll people who are at high risk for developing the disease based on their genetics. So some of our studies involve genetic testing and counseling, but I myself am not a genetic counselor. So I'm trying to bring my experience and working with um, lots of different stakeholder groups on this topic. Um, at Banner Alzheimer's Institute, it's our, it's, we don't recommend that everybody goes and has genetic testing to learn about their risk for developing um, the disease. And You might ask why, um, and that's because what we know about genetics right now, um, we know that there are some genes, that um, might increase a person's risk or susceptibility or chances of developing Alzheimer's in later life. But it's just that, it just increases your risk. These are not uh, foolproof tests that tell somebody with 100% certainty that what you will or won't, um, whether you will or won't develop the disease. Um, And there's lots of other things besides genetics or in addition to genetics that um, influence a person's risk. And so just by learning your people with these genetic risk factors and people without these genetic risk factors develop the disease or don't develop the disease. So right now, um, it's really just for research purposes that we might have studies that are looking for people with a certain genetic makeup. And that's why we would do genetic testing and counseling. But it's not our standard recommendation for just the general public.
0: Okay. But, um, you know, we're talking about mainly the APOE4 um, variant. Um, you know, if you have one copy from one parent, um, it slightly raises the risk factor. If you have two copies, one from each parent um, known as homozygous, it's, it elevates your, your risk um, factor um, more so. But, you know, the truth of the matter is um, a lot of people are finding out their genetics status through um, genetic testing kits, direct to consumer testing kits like 23andMe, I found out mine that way. Um, Previously, people had been surprised to get the, you know, not anticipating the result. So if it's not recommended, I'm assuming now there are people who are finding out their genetic status uh, who might not necessarily had been seeking it in the first place.
1: That's correct. Uh, you know, twenty uh, direct-to-consumer companies like twenty-three and Me will put up a little box and say, you know, d- d- warning, you know, do you want to learn this information? You know, what you're going to learn is about your Alzheimer's risk. And some people say, sure, I'm curious, but they hadn't really thought about maybe all the considerations one should take into account before learning their APOE. Um, genotype or or results. Um, And these considerations include family considerations. Um, Learning your own APOE test results might tell, uh, means, uh, tells your children, your biological children, at least um, an inkling, if you happen to have two copies of APOE4, that means your biological children at least have one copy. It might uh, impact, you know, what um, your siblings, if you have siblings, you know, what their likelihood will be or parents. Um, There's financial considerations if you hadn't thought about getting long-term care insurance. So insurance, you know, financial considerations sort of lumped together. Um, So certainly people might click that box on the direct-to-consumer and say, sure, that might be something I'm interested, but hadn't talked through those things with a genetic counselor. So we're not opposed to people learning their APOE results, but we really, really strongly encourage somebody to work with a genetic counselor or other healthcare provider who's really knowledgeable in genetics and what this might mean for yourself and your family before you just delve in and and click that box and say, oh, I'm curious to learn my results.
0: Now, I wanna talk a little bit about the risk factor because I think there's a lot of confusion around that. for example, I mean, I'm I I found out my genetic status. I'm homozygous E three, which is the neutral one. But yet, I have a mom with Alzheimer's disease, right? So it kind of goes both ways. Even if you don't have a genetic predisposition, you may very well end up with Alzheimer's, um, just like if you have the genetic predisposition, um, you may not end up with Alzheimer's disease. Um, but we do acknowledge there is an associated elevated risk. Now, in the past. That was to me explained to me as, you know, if you're if you if you carry one copy, then maybe it's about a 30 percent elevated risk and two copies mean maybe over 90 percent. Is that true? Do we know if that's true? Because I think there's a lot of confusion over actually analyzing the exact risk.
1: Yeah, there's different ways you, we can look at this, right? So some of the data that you were looking at were um, retrospective case control studies that looked at people who came to autopsy and how much, um, whether there was evidence of Alzheimer's disease pathology in their brains or whatnot. We looked at, we, we analyzed um, in collaboration with um, Deborah Blacker at, um, at Harvard. Uh, we undertook an effort to look at um, several different longitudinal Um, studies, which enrolled people before they might be at the age of risk where they would develop symptoms and follow them over time to look at, you know, really what is the impact of ApoE, at least um, by age 85. And, you know, what we found was in this big analysis um, was that really there's a wide range, number one. Um, And that's telling us that there's a lot of other risk factors at play in addition to APOE, but the APOE effect is very real. But for somebody who has two copies of APOE, and if they are healthy at the age of um, around 60, that their chances of developing mild cognitive impairment or dementia due to Alzheimer's disease uh, through age 85 is around 30 to 55%. That's a big range, but it's certainly not 90%. And there are numerous cases of people who have those, who are homozygous for ApoE4, who never go on to develop Alzheimer's disease, but there are plenty who do. And so that's where that, you know, that's where we're getting that 30 to 55% risk. For somebody who has just one copy of ApoE, that same analysis uh, led us to believe that their risk through age 85 is 20 to 25%. And then somebody with uh, the E3, E3 like yourself is around 10 to 15%. I think it's important to point out that age in of itself is the biggest risk factor for uh, for uh, developing um, Alzheimer's dementia. And then ApoE in addition and other factors like family history. So there are people, your mom might have been an ApoE 3, 4. Yeah. And you got the three from her and three from dad.
0: Yeah, it's interesting um, as we discover more about our genetics um, and, you know, I, I'm appreciative that you've taken a, 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 a more a different type of look into the risk factor there, because, um, you know, I think when people were hearing, oh, 30, 90, that's very scary. You know, understandably, that's really um, a, a, a scary thought. Now, um in terms of research, though, um, it's pretty important to isolate the people who are E4, right? I mean, they're a very valued community for scientific research and finding a cure for Alzheimer's.
1: The E4, particularly those who have two copies of E4, which represent about 2 to 3% of the general population, um, we're extremely interested in, in studying um, this group because there might be some help us develop some therapies that target ApoE, and that could be very interesting. In addition, um, you know, there's another um, ApoE variant that we haven't talked about, and that's the ApoE2 um, allele. And it turns out that that is is likely very protective, especially if you have two copies of ApoE2. So your homozygous for the ApoE2 allele, um, that's about less than half of the general population. But that seems to be, again, very protective. And so studying sort of the bookends of APOE, you know, your two twos and your four fours, I think are, is really gonna be where we're headed in the next few years with research and not only better understanding the disease, but identifying um, therapies to you stop. Know,
0: I've actually never met anyone who's told me they, they're E2. <laughs>
1: Very rare, uh, but we, some of our, there was a big paper that came out um, by, with uh, Dr. Eric Ryman from our institute earlier this year was looking at the protective factors of ApoE22. It's really quite striking um, along with ApoE44. Right.
0: Now, just for the sake of clarity, we're talking, um, when we're talking about APOE4, we're talking about um, later onset Alzheimer's. We're not talking about early onset. Early onset Alzheimer's, um, they are, um, they, they're they in a different um, genetic class. Um, in fact, in fact, it's, a, it's much more definitive in some ways with early onset, uh, because if you possess uh, certain several genetic variants that have been identified, then you are definitely going to have early onset. So it's a it is is that right with the a- pretty a- much a- yeah. A- so, a- so there's a- you
1: know there's autosomal dominant early onset Alzheimer's disease, and that's caused by one of these rare genetic mutations on the presenilin one presenilin-2 or APP gene. Um, and there's um, it's very rare, um, accounts for less than 1% of all cases worldwide. But if you happen to carry this genetic mutation, you are basically at 100% certainty to develop the disease typically at a very young age. And it's hereditary, so it's coming down generation after generation, this clear hereditary pattern. Um, I say almost definite because there was a very rare case that we published um, uh, our some of our group uh, published in collaboration with the team at the University of Antioquia and Medellin, Colombia, and Harvard, recently. Which there was a, a, a presenilin one mutation carrier who hadn't yet developed symptoms in her seventies, and when they looked um, did a PET scan, her brain was full of amyloid, but she there was no tau tangles. And it turned out not only was she a Precelin-1 mutation carrier, but she was homozygous for a very rare ApoE variant called the Christchurch mutation. And so there's something about this ApoE variant that was protecting her brain from developing those tau tangles. And so that's another avenue, um, getting back to that ApoE about ApoE, some variants being very protective. Unfortunately, this woman just passed away recently, not due to Alzheimer's disease, but she had cancer. Um, And so this was nicely covered in the New York Times uh, last week highly encourage your readers to check it out. But this story yeah. of how APOE might even be protect, variants of APOE are protecting the brain against this personal one mutation is really quite remarkable.
0: Well, I mean, it, there's so much more we need to learn about our genetics. And, you know, I we just interviewed um, Claudia K, um, Kawas, uh, who's doing the 90 plus study, um, which is taking, you know, 90 90 to hundred and past a year old and studying them for a longer duration of time. And I, um, one of the conclusions of that study, it's been going on for about 18 years, is that there were people with beta amyloid plaque and tau tangles who didn't show any symptom of dementia at all. They were sharp as anything, sharp as attack. And then um, vice versa, there were people who were showing signs of dementia um, and clearly in a state of memory loss, um, yet they didn't. After after they passed, the autopsy showed they didn't show any plaque or tangles in the brain. Now, what Claudia mentions is there is um, a protein um, that it has been identified in those those people, um, known as TDP forty um, three, that was present in in, in these cases. So um, it's it's really interesting to see that there are markers out there. And also what Claudia mentioned is what you, I think you're talking about is resiliency. There are certain patients who are resilient. Um, they, they might have the genetic makeup, but they have something else that we actually don't know um, that protects them from going into a neurodegenerative state. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, it seems like there's a lot more we need to learn in terms of looking at genetics and and um, neurodegeneration.
1: That's exactly right, and you know, um, so I th- I think you know from our standpoint, we it's not, it goes beyond just these basic APOE ApoE variants, the two, three, and four, and as we get into these uh, uh, genome-wide association studies um, and our ability to um, really analyze genetic data and the power of genetics, um, that's bringing us much further along in our understanding and and how certain genes are protective and some are risk factors and increase our susceptibility for developing the gene.
0: What about for the for, for the early onset folks? I mean, I, I think it's possible to get have early onset and not have one of the, the genes, right? Is that
1: Correct, and so there's there's a great uh, team of researchers, really uh, led out of um, in, University of Indiana, uh, or is it University of Indiana University? I always confuse my Indiana SARS who, who are who are Indiana folks. Um, leading the study called um, uh, the Leads, they're looking at these non-autosomal dominant early onset Alzheimer's cases. So. Onset before the age of, of 60, so people are having uh, developing dementia in their 50s or maybe even prior on, it's not one of these rare, ones. and so remarkable group, and it's a sizable group that deserve and need our study because it's. I think again this is really where some of the genetics come into play so it's not a genetic it's not one of these rare mutations but it's also not just um, APOE and so that they are really studying that and I think there's even in addition to studying these individuals uh, opportunities to do um, cutting edge trials um, with this population and this is a group that's often excluded from um, clinical trials and when they're symptomatic because they're too young and that's just not you know we, we have to stop that.
0: Yeah, we hear that a lot actually too. It's like you have to be 65 plus. What about the people who are younger, right, who
1: Exactly. So, yeah. and they're not that and they don't qualify for these autosomal dominant prevention trials because they don't have one of those mutations. So, it's what about me? So, that's a really unmet need and that's being studied and we're really excited where that's going to go.
0: So I have a question because it comes up all the time on being patient. And that is, you know, when people are are asking, should they get um, a genetic test for Alzheimer's? And you, you were saying Banner doesn't recommend typically that people find out what their genetic status is. Why not, though? Because, you know, in some ways, if we need to identify some of these people, because they're so important for research, why not find out what your genetic status is? Is it, is it What are your findings in terms of, like, maybe the stress that it causes people? Uh, You know, is it, you know, you kind of have to balance those two sides of the equation?
1: Yeah. So that's a lot of things, and that's how I'll try to unpack it. So, you know, one, we've studied the impact of of, of genetic testing and counseling and disclosure, and what we found so far is in people who step forward and say, "Yes, I want to learn my my genetic results." That's a subset of people. Not every. I call them information seekers. Not everybody's an information seeker, um, but in those information seekers, when we assess for psychological readiness to receive the results, and what that means is, you know, uh, not actively suicide, you know, not having um, active ideas about uh, suicide, um, you no know, major depression, anxiety, things like that. Um, learning your ABOE results with proper genetic counseling is safe and well tolerated. We'll see a little increase in um, anxiety um, and, and feelings, you know, sort of uh, of stress after the, um, the counseling that usually dissipates and goes back to normal within six to 12 weeks after the session. So it's it is safe. And that's in people who want to learn the information. Um, One thing I did want to, you know, but that's with genetic counseling. And so, uh, you know, I think when we say the reason why we don't recommend, I think it's it's multiple things. Probably it's past of you know some sort of paternalistic. Oh, you don't need to, don't need to know. Was also, what are you going to do with this information? Um, There's no change. We can't treat you any differently. Um, There's no um, therapy for you to take. The healthy lifestyle interventions are things everybody should be doing. You should be dieting, exercising, regardless of your APOE results, because we know, again, everybody's at risk for developing Alzheimer's disease. It's not just based on your on your APOE. And I think part of it is also, again, the push for having you do it with a, with a genetic counselor or healthcare provider, and frankly, there aren't enough of them. I mean, and so-
0: that is not true. So, Jessica, when you um, let's say um, somebody is participating in a clinical trial at Banner um, and obviously you're ch- testing their genetic status. in in a lot of those cases, uh, does the, the does the participant get to find out what their status is?
1: And that varies by study to study. So some studies, yes. Everybody is learning their APOE results and other studies not. And I and, and that has to really be balanced and, and kept the same within a study. And the reason is, and we're studying this, is this concept of stereotype threat. Think of it like, oh, I'm a woman, I should be bad at math or science. You know, that sort of idea in your head of because because of this characteristic of myself, I'm not good at something. And there have been a few studies that show that people who learn their APOE results um, all of a sudden not only think worse, think that they're doing more poor, they should be doing worse on tests and memory and thinking, but they actually do. So they're subjective. Belief about their memory and thinking ability goes down, as well as objectively on their test performance, they start to decrease. So, that can really impact a clinical trial or other study if some people are learning it and some people aren't in a controlled way. So, it tends to be an all or nothing. We're studying this concept of of stereotype thread a bit more to see if that's really, really how real that um phenomenon is and if it's a true threat or if it's like when you learn your apiary results you see a slight uptick in distress maybe we see a slight uptick in, oh my memory should be going be worse and then it goes back down Um, we're very support you know i think that clinical trials and studies are changing and, and people should know the information it's not fair for researchers to know it and participants not but we have to bring the field and everybody within the study um along with it and for some people the requirement to learn is a non-starter. Again, it says information seekers versus non-seekers. So there's a lot to it about why we do or don't do it.
0: Jessica, enlighten us. We've done some stories on this, on being patient, but there's a lot more being discovered with genetics. Um, and we've covered, I think, some um, other um, genetic variants that have more of a protective um, quality. How much do we know about these newly discovered? I mean, you know, a lot of the science is very new. So is there anything out there that we should know about that Banner knows about, you know, in terms of, um, you know, un, 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 um, unmasking, this, the secrecy behind our genetics or the unknown, uh, I should say?
1: Well, again, there's, there's those protective factors. So we, you know, I think some of this goes back to the Icelandic mutation and, and seeing that people um, who have this protective APP uh, mutation, um, they have, uh, it's almost like a natural beta secretase inhibitor going on, and, and that led to drug development. And so I think what we're discovering now with things like um, uh, the, the protective factors of ABOE2 or this um, Christchurch mutation are going to lead to drug discovery or treatment options. And there's a lot more to come. Um, again, you know, thinking about. Claudia Kawas' 90-plus study and what we're going to learn from those and how we translate that into treatments and, and, you know, gene therapies or things of that nature. There's a lot of really exciting um, things coming down the pathway, we think, with um, particularly uh, APOE-targeted therapies.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much, um, Jessica Langbaum and to Banner and all of the great work that you guys are doing um, for Alzheimer's research. And, you know, please make sure you come back and tell us more when when there are our new findings um, and, and, you know, to keep our community abreast of, of the latest.
1: Well, anytime, we love being patient, and we love all the information that you're putting out there, and we think you're just a great resource. And so happy to be involved anytime and <laughs> where you when you ask.
0: Thank you so much. And you know, Banner has a brain health registry, um, which um, we can post on the link here. But uh, just tell tell our audience how you get to the brain health registry.
1: Certainly. So our registry is end e n d a l z now.org. So that's end alls now.org and signing up just takes about a minute uh it's name uh, and basic contact information and not only will you get some of our newsletters probably highlighting some of the same topics in a different way that uh, the being patient newsletter comes up with but we connect people to research studies taking place in your community the choice is always yours whether to participate in those studies but we're kind of like a research matchmaking service if you will
0: that's great. Thank you so much, Jessica. And if you want to see um, more of this interview, um, we always upload them to beingpatient.com if you missed any of it. Um, and we will also transcribe it onto our site. Um, so and make sure you sign up for our newsletter because we will keep you posted about other upcoming talks from experts like Jessica uh, to keep you informed to send if you have any ideas um, for talks or curious or need information, please email us at info at beingpatient. Dot .com Thanks very much for watching.